Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me, as always, is my co-host, John Tidy. Hey, John, how are you doing? Hey, Ian. I'm doing well. And we thought it was high time for another Q&A episode where we answer some of the questions that you've been sending us on social media and YouTube comments and everywhere else. So uh, let's get straight into it. John, what is the first question? Well, first of all, thank you everyone for sending in questions. They've been great. Absolutely. All right. So the first question comes from Mars Lights on Twitter. Have any tools that are impossible in analog, like split EQ, fundamentally changed your mastering process? Or is it still 90% or more basics like level matching, EQ limiting, maybe compression saturation with super modern stuff only for special cases? So the short answer to that for me is it's still 90% EQ compression and limiting. You know, even the other stuff you mentioned is much more rare for me. Maybe stereo image processing a little bit more. But I have been playing with split EQ and a few of the other kind of new tools are becoming available. Things like Music Rebalance uh, from Isotope, the plugins that Leapwing Audio make. So Stage 1, Center 1. The interesting thing about these new plugins is that they're using perceptual coding. So the same uh, technology, the same algorithms that enable mp3 or other lossy compression codecs to be used they kind of untangle the audio signal in some way to figure out what is audible and what isn't when they're making an mp3 or some other data compressed file but you can use that same tech to separate out different elements of the music to try and isolate vocals or drums or bass or whatever or the mono part of an image the stereo image versus the side part of the stereo image more accurately than you can simply with mid-side or sum and difference processing. So they're incredibly clever and they're incredibly powerful, um, but I would say they are also incredibly dangerous. <laughs> um, and they start to kind of blur the boundary for between mixing and mastering for me. So, you know, at the point where you can actually say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and tweak the vocal level up a little bit, it's not only that we seem to be affecting the mix, because sometimes it can seem like you've done that because of the normal mastering processing, but you are actually doing that. That's one aspect. So it kind of blurs that boundary even more. And then the other concern I have about that kind of processing is is artifacts. So I have been playing with Split EQ, which is Eventide, is it? And it's it's cool. It's a really interesting concept. I'm sure anybody listening to this show has probably seen the publicity and the reviews and, and knows what it's about. It enables you to apply EQ separately to the transient aspects of the music versus the sustained elements of the music. Just because it's interesting, I actually found it quite hard to use. It made me realise that when I'm listening for EQ, I really am listening for the whole sound. So particularly when you're just EQing the transients, it can be quite tricky to, to pick out what the effects of it actually are when it's doing stuff. But it's potentially very powerful. You know, for example, you could add... Um, some high-frequency stuff to the sustained aspects of a sound only so that you could bring out the kind of the ring of a cymbal or the the hi-hats, for example, without making the transients, the starts of those notes kind of super spiky and aggressive. And there's, there's all kinds of other potential uses you could put it to, but it is quite easy to unintentionally end up with artifacts in the sound where you have those kind of slightly swirly, you know, the hypersonic kind of tweeting birdie type effects that you can get with low bitrate MP3s. So I do think it's something you need to be 
cautious with. Um, and John, I think you were saying you hadn't tried Split EQ, but have you tried any of these these other modern processors? Yeah. Um, one that comes to mind is the Entropy EQ from mm -hmm. Sonable. And that's a really interesting one as well because it doesn't really work like a regular EQ, right? It can, but it can also kind of kind of change like the space in each EQ band. So like it's really interesting on on acoustic guitars to like bring out the transients or bring out like um, more room tone kind of uh, really really strange EQ that's tough to even describe. But that's one of those things where like oh maybe I'll try that. And I'll I'll spend 15 minutes on it, and I'll take it off and go back to a regular EQ. Um, <laughs> a lot of times, and um, but I will mention uh, matching EQ. That's not super new, but it's definitely like a more advanced kind of workflow than a straightforward parametric EQ. So even going back to yeah, like absolutely. Ozone Three, I was using that a little bit, um, but more recently Equivocate, which is also from Eventide or New Fan Guild Audio's kind of collaboration with them. It's a new take on the the matching EQ thing, and so matching EQ it's not something you need in every uh, session, but once in a while you get ten songs and one of those songs just sounds completely different from the rest, and you need to give it a a quick nudge in the right direction uh, without, you know, spending all of your your energy getting it there because you only have a, a limited mm -hmm. amount of time to get a first impression on this before you're, mm -hmm. yeah. So something like that can be really helpful. You analyze the songs that already sound good, analyze the the one that's not sounding so good, and you find the blend where it pushes it in the right direction, and then you can go on to your typical mastering process. So that one or the the one in Ozone, they both work really well, as long as you don't push it too far. I'd never go past like 70%. Yeah, I, I was going to say that those are things that I don't really use much in mastering, but actually it's not strictly true. The classic one for me is if somebody wants to deliver a completely different mix for some reason, and I was actually pretty happy with the overall EQ balance of the original, that can be quite a time-consuming process. You know, you have to effectively start from scratch with the new mix and then compare the two and decide, you know, okay, what did I like about this? What do I like about that? How? And like you say, it's a, it's a shortcut to that because I can just match the EQ of the new mix to my original master. And it, yeah, it just gets you in the ballpark really quickly. So I do occasionally use that. And then the other time, I actually used a match EQ quite recently for a video I did on YouTube about uh, the new Adele single, where there's some differences between the way that it sounds on YouTube and the way that it sounds on CD and the other streaming services. But the EQ wasn't quite the same, and I wanted to kind of remove that variable when I was talking about those differences. I actually used TDR Nova EQ. That has a really pretty effective match EQ module hidden away in it. Yeah. There's a special window you have to click that I've forgotten the name Smart of. Smart Operations. Smart Operations, that's the one. Um, yeah, and that did a really nice job of that. And I, I've used the, the Ozone version. I used the one in RX myself from time to time. I haven't tried uh, the other one you mentioned. You were mentioning about the Entropy EQ. That's a similar idea to Split EQ, but it reminded me of something that Split EQ does that I think is kind of interesting, but I can't really imagine myself using it in mastering. Not only can you influence the, the transient information separately from the sustained information in the sound, but you can also process the amount of stereo width in those signals. So rather than just having a kind of multiband stereo width control, which is a bit like a side EQ or a difference EQ, which is a fairly familiar effect, you can also 
hone that down even further to just the transients or just the sustained stuff. I would have preferred the ability to just EQ, for example, the center of the image or the edges of the image rather than actually literally broadening out or narrowing those elements because I tried it and it sounded weird. But it's it's another incredibly powerful thing. So I, I think we're this is an interesting time, you know. These kind of plugins have only been around for two, three years that I'm aware of. Yeah, they are kind of rewriting the rules of what is possible in mastering. I mean, if anybody wants a benchmark of how good this stuff is, I saw a Facebook post from Bob Katz mentioning that he had used the music rebalance tool in RX in order to bring out the vocals on a master that he was working on. You know, if this stuff is good enough for him, <laughs> you know, he's he's choosy about his audio, let's say. <laughs> so <laughs> it means it's pretty good. Absolutely. So we don't have a name for this person. They just left the name E on the website for episode number 68. I have a question about automating the master volume when mastering. If you're using a limiter on your main output, at what stage do you do the volume automation before or after the limiter? Yeah, which is a really interesting question because obviously they have a completely different effect. If you lift the level up prior to the limiter, it's going to hit the threshold sooner. It's going to result in more limiting and that's going to change the sound. And then if you reduce the level before the limiter, you will get less limiting or potentially no limiting. Um, whereas if you automate after the limiter, then the sound of that limiting is included in the sound that you're changing the gain of. So for example, if you put a ton of heavy limiting on something and then turn the gain down, you'll have a quieter signal, but still with very heavy limiting. If you automate the master track volume, which is post effects in a lot of DAWs, that will decrease the amount of dither applied from that limiter, which not always desirable either. So there's always a compromise, I think. Right. I thought we swore we weren't going to mention dither on this episode. <laughs> and it was you, John. That's fantastic. Um, honestly, I get confused because I think the master track is a fairly Pro Tools specific concept and it works differently than I would expect it to. I'm not a Pro Tools ninja, so I don't really understand the details of it. And we probably don't need to get into it. Pro Tools is, is one of the only ones that is the fader is pre effects chain. And that's the only track type that works like that. And you can have more than one master. You can have a master fader for every output. But Cubase, Nuendo, everything else, there's just a master fader in the mixer for your stereo bus or, or whatever main output that is, whatever goes out to your speakers. In most cases, the fader is after the effects chain. So you can automate as the first plugin in the chain, you can automate whatever is going into it. So individual tracks or individual items, a crossfade or a, a fade in out would be automating the volume going into it, which would affect the limiter. Or you can automate the, the master track itself and, and that's the final final gain stage before the output. But that final gain stage in Pro Tools, is that pre or post dither since you raised it? The dither is applied as a plugin, or it was at least when I was using it. Dither would be a plugin on your master track. And so the volume would be changing going into the dither, not after. But in Reaper, if you automate right. the, vo the master track volume, you would be turning down the amount of dither if you're using dither as a plugin. There's also the option of using dither in the render window, completely separate, not configurable. That's interesting. And I was about to say that in WaveLab, that fader is pre-dither, but, and I think that's true, but I would have to double check. Anyway, for anybody listening, it's something to be careful about. Yeah, it, it's something that I don't think about all that much. And it, in most cases, I don't think you're gonna hear much difference unless you're really slamming that limiter. And that's where you'll start to hear like fluttering 
and probably only on a long fade out where you're, you've got like, I don't know, eight bars of the song, which is just slowly fading out in volume. And you want the limiting to stay the same uh, throughout that entire process so it doesn't get below the threshold of the limiter and, uh, and start to flutter. So it matters, but only in certain cases, I would say. And if you're doing volume automation, like we talked about in that episode, um, for doing macro dynamic changes, increasing the volume of the chorus, decreasing the volume of the verses slightly, you usually want that effect going into the limiter. Yeah, th- th- that was going to be my quick reply on it, is that I, I, do, I do it pre in fact, I do it pre-compression as well, because the main reason that I do it is to usually to prevent the compression and any other dynamics processing being hit too hard. I mean, I might also use it because, you know, for example, the verse just isn't loud enough. But if the verse isn't loud enough, then in my experience, I'm unlikely to end up with too much limiting in comparison to the chorus because the verse started off quieter, you know, yeah. even if it's hitting the limiter a bit harder than it was, it's liable to be difficult to hear. And, and that also, you know, goes along with the fact that I don't tend to hit limiters super hard. Um, my whole thing about limiters is that they should be as invisible as possible. You know, it's the same reason I don't particularly agonize about different kinds of limiters. Although I've been using the TC brick wall limiter recently uh, and quite enjoying the way that it sounds. It's slightly less transparent than some of the other ones that I have. So that completely contradicts what I normally say. Yeah. <laughs> um, to answer E's question, um, yes, I absolutely, it's correct that by automating the volume in this way, you do end up with a different amount of dynamics processing. And for me, that's usually desirable. Now, But there are, like you mentioned, there are times when that might not be desirable. If you've got heavy compression going on and a long fade, then you would want that fade to be post-compression so that you continue to hear the compression effects during the fade. That, that's a great example. And I guess if you were using the limiter more creatively, hitting it much harder, then yes, adjusting the amount of limiting that was happening, if that has some kind of sonic impact on the song then you might choose to actually do the automation later but then you would have to be careful about the potential of adding extra clipping if you increase the gain after the limiter depending on where the threshold was so as always it depends (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly time for another question all right ed king from youtube asks on our episode number 77 spotify disabled their limiter i get that minus 14 lufs is the reference for most streaming services and that ebu broadcast standard is minus 23 lufs do you think two masters are needed or do the broadcasters adjust at transmission and and so he's talking like if you master your music you want to get that in a film or tv show like do you need to provide a, a version that's at minus 23 for music? There's a simple answer for that. There's a simple answer for that. And the answer is? No, you don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And and in fact, um, but there's a more complicated answer that is more interesting. In some ways, the the level that you supply for broadcast for music is unlikely to be relevant because if you're supplying music for broadcast, the chances are it's going to be used as within a larger show. So that minus 23 LUFS requirement applies for the entire show. So regardless of how loud your music is, they will adjust the level of it so that it fits in with everything else that's happening in the show and the level you mastered it at will be changed. Yeah. Almost always it's going to be turned down by 10 dB or more. Yeah, exactly. Or more. Um, Which, by the way, makes it super frustrating that library music services are requesting people to supply super hot masters because... They think people want that, but then it's going to get turned down 
later anyway but that's a whole other tangent we can do another day maybe yeah and and then the the amateurs making productions that don't have to follow that broadcast standard just put it in flat at zero db and it's way too loud and out of balance but that's i've complained about that before (laughs) (laughs) well that was going to be my next point in fact is that another key difference between broadcast and streaming services is that you know streaming services have a distribution loudness which for most of them currently is minus 14 the aes is recommending that that be reduced to minus 16 for music and minus 18 for dialogue and other kind of varied content but they adjust the levels for that themselves that's the the normalization algorithms that do that whereas for broadcast if you were supplying let's say a music video for some a station that was lit, like as mtv does mtv even exist anymore they do but it's it's i don't think the m stands for music anymore <laughs> okay well i'm just showing my age but anyway if yeah if it was a, a station that just showed music videos then you would have to meet their broadcast standard which will be minus 23 because it's minus 23 everywhere and in that case you would have to supply the master at minus 23 otherwise it would get rejected by the broadcaster you might think they could turn it down they that's not the way they work it's like you meet the spec or your stuff doesn't pass our checks so not just music videos like if you have a short film that has to be exactly minus 23 or it doesn't work on netflix or it doesn't get put into this anthology show or whatever it is that broadcasts it yeah actually that's a great point if the thing that you're mastering is not music but or even mixing but is actually a whole show that's when you do have to worry about that minus 23 but then you get to the final part of the answer which is does that mean you should change the way that you master it and my answer would still be no if i was supplying music that was going to be broadcast if i knew it was going to go to a dub and somebody was going to mess around with the levels anyway i would just master it in whatever way i thought sounded best and let them make that adjustment. If it was an entire show and it included music, I would still master that music as I thought it sounded best and then turn it down. Because, you know, as I'm sure everybody listening to this kind of knows by now, the process and the decisions that we make during mastering where we choose the loudness and how much dynamics processing and all the rest of it, it's a really delicate balancing act. And it's intimately related to the final loudness so you don't want to use different rules for broadcast. I mean, I guess if it was an orchestral kind of more classically oriented soundtrack for example then you would master it differently than if it was a pop or a rock track but that's to do with the genre and the the musical requirements not where it's being distributed so i think that's we clear need to sum that up <laughs> I, th- I think that's clear <laughs> we may have gone past that and, and muddied it even more yeah we may have yeah exactly gone past the clear water and kicked up a load of mud let me try and summarize it so Broadcast and streaming are completely different. Broadcast requires you to hit the target of minus 23. Streaming will adjust things for you. But if you're talking specifically about music, you still want to master it the way that you always would have done, then allow the levels to be adjusted afterwards, either by the people at the mix or by you if you're distributing a a music video soundtrack, for example. Did that work? I think so. (laughs) Cool. The next question comes from Ed West on Twitter. Are you concerned about absolute phase? So for example, if you see the transient of a kick drum going down first rather than up, would you correct it? Okay, so Ed is talking about looking at the waveform display in a DAW. And yeah, if you take something like, I mean, let's let's use a snare um, instead of a kick drum because it's a slightly clearer example. You know, the first thing that happens is stick hits the drum head and it's a snare so it's it's a punchy thing so logic says that you want that first impact that first bit of the transient to come out towards you it wants to be positive in the waveform display so it yeah. would go up which is 
your speaker going outward. Correct. Pushing outwards. Yes. And that's what's known as the absolute phase. So if you flipped the polarity of both the left and the right signals, so we're not talking about turning something in one one channel upside down and getting into antiphase that cancels in mono or anything like that. If you turn both channels upside down, then the first thing the speaker would do at the beginning of that snare hit is it would actually pull back, which kind of doesn't make any sense logically. So that's the reason for the question. And the main kind of follow-up to that is, well, can you hear the difference? I did some tests on this myself a long time ago, way before I had any ABX testing software or anything like that. And at that time, I thought I could hear a difference, but it was very, very subtle. I would need to redo those tests. I'm pretty sure people have done research into this and said that it is audible, but it's super subtle. Do you, do you think you can hear that difference, John? On a single source, I don't think I can hear the difference. If it's just a snare drum, positive or negative polarity, like, or, you know, positive voltage first going to the speakers versus negative, I don't think I can hear the difference. It's when it's a single source within a mix that has phase relationships with other things, like one mic out of two on a kick drum, I can hear the difference whether it's in phase or not. If it's the snare drum out of phase with the overhead, I can hear that. Even if it's the whole mix, whether it starts on positive or negative voltage, I don't think it matters because the speaker is moving so quickly regardless. I completely agree with you. If, if you're blending multiple mics within a mix and one of them is out of phase with the others, then you have a problem. So the classic example of that is a snare where you've got a top mic and a bottom mic. Um, if they're both pointing at the snare, you can just imagine that the stick comes down, hits the skin, it goes down, so you get a pulse going in one direction on one mic and it goes in the opposite direction to the other mic because they're pointing at each other. And they will, to some extent, cancel each other out and the chances are the snare will sound weak and wimpy in that situation. If you're using that miking configuration, it's important to make sure that you've tried flipping the polarity of the underneath mic to make sure that you, that doesn't happen, you don't get that cancellation and you do get the big kind of beefy snare sound that you're looking for. But that's different to an entire mix being flipped one or the other. And yeah, the transients at the beginning of a kick drum or on a snare are probably so fast that it would be hard to hear that. One exception to that might be brass instruments. Um, in fact, any wind instrument, because in that case, rather than, you know, with a, with a snare, you, you hit the skin and then it vibrates up and down pretty much symmetrically. Whereas with, especially with a close mic'd wind instrument, there's a continuous stream of air coming out of the instrument. If you think about a mic pointing up the bell of a trumpet, for example, those waveforms are very asymmetrical and they tend to be very much more on the positive side of the waveform than the negative. That's a situation where I wonder it might be more audible. And so I think if I saw that in a mix, I might be more tempted to correct it. But the final thing to say is really the mastering stage is too late for this. You know, it is possible to get an entire mix where it's been flipped upside down. That has happened in at least one bit of digital audio hardware that I know of because of a bug. But I used that bit of hardware and it was like that for years and nobody ever noticed. <laughs> it's pretty low in the audibility spectrum, if you like. But I think if I saw that in a mix, I would probably correct it. But what I would do is I would listen very carefully and see whether I could actually hear the difference or not. If I couldn't hear a difference, I would probably correct it. If I could hear a difference, then I would probably ask the question and go back to the mix. What I'm getting at is it's, I think it's much more likely that, as you said, it would 
be part of the mix. You know, the most likely thing is you've got a dodgy cable where that's been wired backwards. And in that case, if there's any kind of spill or bleed in the mix, then it could be causing problems. It could be that somebody done it deliberately and that they liked that effect. You know, I mean, it's it's pretty common practice when you're multi-miking guitar cabs to, if you're not going to sort of kind of measure everything out and make sure that it's in phase in that way, you kind of put the mics up and then the first thing you do is play with the polarity buttons to, to see which version you like the best. So that's a kind of different creative aspect to this. But yeah, for me, by the time you get to the mastering stage, probably it is what it is and it's too late to make a, a useful correction to it, um, with the possible exception of things like wind instruments. The good thing is that it is kind of easy to, to test. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's an easy test to do. Um, it's an easy comparison to make. You know, if you think you can hear a difference, either you're right, and in which case you're doing the right thing, or you're wrong, in which case it doesn't matter. Definitely got past the clear water into the kicking the mud up stage with that one. Good. Okay. Uh, I think we've got one more question. Is that right? Well, there's two questions from this person. Okay. Okay. Hunter Nico McKenzie from Facebook asked two questions, one geeky question and one philosophical. Do you see any, do you see any benefit in a dedicated headphone amp for reference headphone? And what is something in mastering that you have changed your mind about over the years? I'll go first with the headphone amp. I don't, I've never tried a dedicated headphone amp yet, but you know, Maybe someday. Yeah, actually, my answer is the same, which is that I have not tried a dedicated headphone amp, but I have not needed to. Actually, I tell you one time I needed it was when I first got the HD 650s and I had an early generation iPod and I was super excited to try out these expensive headphones. So I plugged them straight into the iPod and the result was a ton of noise that I wasn't expecting. You know, that I'd been using the iPod for years with just earbuds and it sounded absolutely fine. But there, there was an impedance mismatch between the output of the iPod and the 650s. And yeah, I mean, the music sounded okay, but it was, there was just way too much noise. So that's an example of when you would need a dedicated headphone amp. But that's the only time it's happened to me. I've not had that with any of the other, you know, I mean, I'm using pretty good gear most of the time anyway, so I wouldn't expect that to happen. I know there are people out there who absolutely sing the praises of the the headphone amps that they have i always wonder how they did their a b testing of the headphones you know with and without the amp and all the rest of it i think it's a, that's a prime candidate from for some confirmation bias but i mean i think you know technically speaking all you need is an amp with enough power and suitably matched to the impedance of your headphones and they vary from model to model and brand to brand if that's all fine then other than that it's just down to the quality of the analog circuitry so, yeah, it's not something that I, I mean, I don't use headphones for super critical listening myself. You know, I tend to use them for when I don't want to be annoying somebody else. And if I want to kind of really focus in on some technical details like noise or clicks or whatever, but I hear all that stuff perfectly well on my monitors. So I don't often reach for the headphones and certainly I don't make kind of critical EQ and imaging decisions on headphones usually. So if those things are not quite perfect, with the headphone app that I have, it's not kind of going to be a something that really upsets me. Having said that, uh, you know, when I listen on headphones, you know, for example, I can hear that the EQ balance is better when I use Sonarworks with the HD650s than if I don't. Uh, and with Sonarworks doing what it thinks is correct, my masters sound absolutely fine to me on headphones. So that tells me that in terms of the tonal balance and all that stuff, what I'm getting from the headphone amp on my gear is is fine. I have a TC electronic interface that I plug the headphones directly into. So 
yeah, I'm not saying headphone apps are not required, but for me personally, I haven't felt the need to investigate that. And before we move on to the second question, I'm going to give a shout out to a YouTube channel called Julian Krauss or Julian Krauss's YouTube channel, where he does really kind of scientific uh, testing of audio interfaces, including the headphone amplifiers in them. And there, I believe there is a dedicated video talking about how he does the testing and why it's important with the headphone amp part of it. Um, we'll have a link to his channel and uh, highly recommend that channel. Mm, that's cool. I didn't know about that one. Thank you. I'm going to take a look. Something in mastering that you've changed your mind about over the years? This is a good question. It's a great question. And I had to think about it. And I don't know whether this is the most interesting answer, but it's the one that sprang to mind. And and that was really that, you know, I started mastering by being an apprentice at an independent mastering studio. I had mentors. I was trained I spent months just copying tapes and listening to stuff and then got to experiment with a few masters and gradually worked my way up and eventually, you know, became a mastering engineer in my own right. And I did that in a an acoustically designed room with incredibly expensive speakers and gear and everything. And the whole time that I was there, I believed that that was a requirement to do a great job mastering. And then I left to set up my own company and I was dry hiring those rooms and the company closed down and I didn't have access to those rooms anymore. So I was able to use a studio that belonged to an ex-colleague of mine who had also a properly set up room with incredibly expensive monitoring and all the rest of it for a while. But it got to the point where I needed a space of my own to be able to just listen to stuff and make decisions and judgments. And that's when I made the room that I'm sitting in to record this podcast, which is, used to be the garage of this house. So it's by no means an acoustically designed space. Um, and if anybody wants to see the videos that I did at the time of setting this room up there on YouTube, we can put the link to those in the show notes at themasteringshow.com. So it was never intended to be a proper mastering studio. It very much has affordable gear in it as opposed to, you know, the, the top flight stuff from the real mastering studios and everything is in the box. And working in this room for those years since then has changed my opinion um, and is what enabled me to, you know, to do this podcast and to to do the courses that I do on production device to, to help people master their music at home. It is possible to do a great job of mastering in a sensible room with sensibly priced gear. You know, you need a certain minimum standard and it's definitely harder than, you know, the, I'm not going to say anybody should not want all of that expensive gear and, and all the rest of it, but, you know, that really changed my opinion of what was possible and kind of really brought home to me the fact that it's not what you use, it's the way that you use it. You know, it's it's the skills and the mindset and understanding the goals and all the things that we talk about on this show that are much more important than the gear and the, the room and all the rest of it, providing you can achieve, you know, a high enough standard in those to, to be able to listen objectively and, you know, have a a neutral balanced frequency response and low distortion and, and all of that stuff. So yeah, that's, that's definitely changed for me hugely. I, I think for me, there was a point when kind of everything I knew about mastering kind of changed. I didn't understand it. I may not have even known the word when I first went to uh, audio engineering school. And so what I learned there kind of formed my knowledge and then trying it on my own and stuff. I kind of got into some bad habits. I took your course, Home Mastering Masterclass, and that really changed mm -hmm. my mind on a lot of things. Yeah, so I, I can't point to any one aspect of that that um, that really changed in my mind. It was just kind of like, 
just kind of being open to like how everyone does this a little bit differently, uses different tools, but ultimately comes out with with a great result. And also that it's more about serving the the artist than kind of, it's not always about making it like the best it can be or like doing all these these things to improve it. It's it, sometimes you just need to like uh, advise the artist that they're just looking for someone else to tell them that sounds good, to give them the confidence to release it. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. And I mean, actually, that's something that it's not not something that's changed for me because it's something that I was taught from the outset. But I I hope that it's something that maybe this show and, you know, the YouTube channel and things will help change other people's minds about, which is, you know, especially nowadays, like when I started, nobody knew what mastering was. So one of the first things that you would have with an attended session is you'd be explaining to the client what you were going to do and why. These days, it's kind of the exact opposite where everybody thinks they know what mastering is and expects all kinds of stuff often they're expecting magic and for a kind of this incredible transformation. And actually, you know, that's not what it is either. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's somewhere in between those two things where it's like it's not like you're doing nothing, but what you're doing can often end up being, as we've said often, almost completely invisible. So yeah, it's not about putting, for me, it's not about putting your stamp on the sound or giving it a signature sound or any of that kind of stuff. It's just about serving the music giving the client something they're happy with and yeah, getting out of the way, uh, you know, so that the music can do what everybody wants it to do, which is a pretty good mastering maxim if ever I've heard one. Yeah, absolutely. So that seems like a great way to wrap things up. Thank you, John, for helping me out answering those questions and for mixing the episode as always. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please head back into the archive and dig out some of the other past Q&A episodes that we've done and of course all the other episodes where we talk about loads of this stuff and go into even more excruciating detail about them and yeah head over to themasteringshow.com forward slash review and leave us hopefully a five star rating so that other people can find us and maybe get something from the show as always thanks for listening 